How you guys doing? If y'all are anything like me, I, when my alarm went off this morning, I was like, what in the world? <laughs> and uh, the gentle, uh, I'm, I'm glad he sang that song, the gentle rolling of the thunder. I was like, man, it's tempting. <laughs> Who else can speak this morning? <laughs> no, my name's Nathan. I'm the director of equipping and apologetics here at Watermark, and it's uh, my pleasure to be with you guys this morning. We're going to... Uh, uh, being a passage, and I'm sure guys are going to come in. And, uh, I think it's still raining outside, um, but so we'll just let them continue to come. But we're going to be in a really interesting passage this morning. It's just 20 verses, so it's one of the shorter sections. But it's it's so crucial to the Gospel of Mark, and it's so crucial to what we've been talking about for the last month or so. And uh, so, just like with anything, like I said a few weeks ago, anytime we come to the text, like we have to understand what we're coming to and how. The, the section that we're going to be studying fits into the broader section of Mark that we're in, but then also how that broader section of Mark fits into the whole narrative of the entire gospel, and then how that gospel fits into the narrative of all four gospels, and then how the four gospels fit into the section of the New Testament, and then how the New Testament fits into the Old Testament. So there's this, you, you never want to come to a text and cherry pick it out and just look at it without understanding the, the broad kind of meta-narrative, if you want to use that word, or the broad story of Scripture and how that specifically fits into what's going on. And, and the reason that this is so important is uh, this section we're looking at is because this really is, uh, we're, we're getting at the heart of, of Mark's gospel, and, uh, which, is, which is going to be great. Uh, but, but I would also s- encourage you guys, too, we're, uh, this is a little bit of a, uh, an announcement way far ahead, but probably in, in January of next year, we'll, we'll teach a class called Cover to Cover. It's one of our core classes, and cover to, the Cover to Cover class is the class that covers that entire kind of story of Scripture. So if you're new to Watermark, or if you're new to this whole Bible study thing, and uh, need to be equipped in, in some deeper ways like that, would encourage you guys to, to check those out when they come. But, but let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses Starting in verse 32, we'll go from verse 32 to the end of the chapter. And uh, given the um, given the context of what's happening here, and I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because you're going to see some things in this section. If you read ahead, then you already saw them, or if you've read Mark's gospel, then you've already seen them. But you're going to see some things here that'll make us kind of scratch our head a little bit. Like, really, what's going on? And, and so uh, it's, it's always important to understand not just the literary context of what's going on with Mark's gospel, but also the historical context. What's happening as the disciples are interacting with Jesus in this section, and what has happened really for a, a, you know, an entire millennium prior to this, hap- this uh, instance that we're going to look at in Mark 10 today. And uh, we have to understand that, one, Jesus is a Jew, okay, sometimes that's lost on some people. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't like a European uh, kind of Renaissance man who's you know has long flowing hair and a uh, long white face, right? It, he's he's Middle Eastern. He's he's uh, he's Jewish, and uh, the people that he's interacting with are by and large Jewish. And so, in order to understand Jesus and in order to understand his disciples, we need to understand Israel. We need to understand Judaism. We need to understand the Jewish history. And so, in looking at that really quickly. I just want to go through this uh, rapid fire. But in 931 B.C., uh, Solomon had just died. So King, you had Saul and then King David, and King David united the kingdom, and, 
and pushed the borders out really to as, as far as, as Israel's borders had ever been. They, Israel at, under King David was really like the dominant world power at the time. And then Solomon carried on his dad's um, kind of torch and built a temple and had a lot of building expansion going on during that time. And then Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over. And Rehoboam was, uh, as we'll see today, was someone who uh, took his authority and lorded it over people. And it did not go well, okay? The kingdom split. Um, it didn't go well, it went so bad, in fact, that uh, there became the southern kingdom, which was Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem, and you had the northern kingdom, um, which was Israel, and its capital was Samaria. And so there was a lot of instability, which opened the door for a lot of foreign powers to come in and begin to oppress a weaker Israel, then in uh, 580, really starting in 605, but culminating in 586, uh, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans came over from Babylon and, and uh, basically sacked Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and carried off its people into captivity. And so Israel, this is a massive loss of like national identity for Israel. They no longer existed as a nation. And, and so uh, uh, they spent some, some years in captivity, but then the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And during the Persian rule, the, uh, Israel, the Jews, were dispersed all over Persia. Um, in fact, it's where we see the, the story of Esther, right? She, um, she's in the capital city um, of Persia, and there are, uh, kind of under the Jewish dispersion, there was a community of Jews that lived there, and she became the queen. Um, but there was a lot of vulnerability there. And then uh, the Persians were conquered by the Greeks under Alexander, and there was a massive power struggle. So you'll see that the Greeks didn't, the Greeks under Alexander didn't hold power for long because he died young. And so when he died, um, there, there was a massive power struggle between uh, four of his generals primarily, but two of them in this story. And uh, those were the, uh, his Egyptian general, Ptolemy, kind of settled in Egypt. And then Seleucus was in Syria. And so now you had Israel and uh, the Egyptians were taxing them, oppressing them. And then power switched from the Egyptians to the Syrians. And then there was a guy named Antiochus IV um, who was nicknamed infamously Epiphanes, right? Uh, where he basically called himself God and set up worship uh, altars to, him, to himself in Israel. He's the one that went into Jerusalem, went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the Holy of Holies, right? Um, in, inside the Holy of Holies on, on, uh, on the altar. So... Um, oppression is probably a good word for that, right? There, um, the, the Jewish people had lost their identity. They were dispersed. They were vulnerable. They were caught in the middle of this power struggle. They were being taxed. They were being oppressed. And then finally, they kind of had enough, and there was a group called the Hasmoneans. Um, and I'm still waiting for Hollywood to make like a good, solid movie about this because this is like the Jewish like Braveheart, you know? There's a guy named Judas uh, Maccabees. Um, the, uh, he got his name from the Aramaic word Maccabah, which means the hammerer. Bam! You know, you're like, yeah, I want to watch that, you know? Um, but he, uh, so the Hasmoneans, uh, it, when they took power, though, there was a lot of, once they gained it, there was a lot of infighting and corruption that took place. Um, again, instability. And then so much instability that finally um, there was an appeal to Rome. And that appeal to Rome, which, which initially was intended to be like, hey, come support my side, where, where the Romans came along and said, hey, we're not going to support either one of you. We're just going to come move in, right? So it's kind of that guy that's like, hey, come help me out for a second. And then he like comes and takes your house. Um, and that's, that's, that's what happened in 63 when Pompey came and, and uh, sacked Jerusalem. 
And so um, that's just a little, that's a brief historical context as to, as to what is going on when Jesus, and, and Jesus is born into this, right? Galatians 4.4, 4, at the fullness of time, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born, born of a woman, born under the law, born into this instability, into this context. And, and so there, there's a ton of literature that was written during this time. A lot of times um, it's just referred to as um, uh, apocryphal literature. Um, and this is one of the books, the uh, apocryphal books. It's, it's the Psalm of Solomon, so not the Song of Solomon. Um, if, if you're thinking that, oh, now we're going to talk about sex. No, that's not. This is the Psalm of Solomon. Um, <clears throat> but this is what... This was written during, that, during the Syrian oppression and the Hasmonean uh, dynasty leading up to the, the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. And so we, it, it helps us get a sense for um, what the temperature was of the people during that time and their expectation of, of who the Messiah would be. And so, see, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, which is a messianic term. And, and Jesus calls himself the son of David. At the time which you choose, O God, to rule over Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength to shatter into pieces the unrighteous rulers, to purify Jerusalem from the Gentiles that trample her down in destruction, in wisdom of righteousness, to drive out sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the lawless Gentiles by the word of his mouth. So... The messianic expectation, if, if you think that, um, that the disciples are just totally like, oh man, they're so blind, how could they not see that Jesus is the Messiah? He's, you got to understand, Jesus is not acting anything like their expectation of the Messiah, what their expectation called for. This was, the, the, when they were thinking of Messiah, they were thinking of um, political, military ruler who would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, sit on the throne and rule with an iron rod, like David did, right? And so, and yet, Jesus is transfigured in front of them, and that's got to be like a, that's got to be where the disciples are like, I'm doubling down on this guy, right? He was, uh, he was that, and now all of a sudden he's standing there with Moses and Elijah in, in, in glory, like, I'm putting my money on that guy. And yet, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the next thing he says is, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to do what? to die, right? Which is why they're like, we got to figure out what that means because it doesn't fit into our paradigm, right? So it's, it's interesting as, as we read um, and starting in verse 32 that um, they were on their way up to Jerusalem where Jesus, with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid and he looked at the 12, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So if we need any help in, in seeing whether the disciples got this or not, the very next thing that happens is that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Tell him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you, right? Um, it, it's, like the, it's like Jesus is saying, it's like going in one ear and out the other, or it's just not even hitting them at all, 
the, the, this, this, this expectation that the Messiah would come and die. That's the antithesis of what's supposed to be happening. And Jesus, I think, with a lot of grace for his friends, um, said this, uh, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Again, this physical messianic kingdom where the Gentiles, the Romans at the time, are driven out. And Jesus says, you, don't, you do not know what you're asking. Um, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they answered, we can. Right? Um, again, you have to understand, in, in, their, in their mind, when Jesus says, can you drink this cup? They're thinking of, hey, when that golden chalice comes across, that's, that is the king's chalice, and I'm sitting at your right and at your left, you want me to drink that cup? Heck yeah, I can drink that cup. Gonna be some good wine and a golden chalice. I drink that all day. Let's do it. And 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 Jesus again, I think, with a lot of compassion for them, um, said, "Yeah, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left, it's not for me to grant. Um, those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And it's interesting when the ten, when the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John." Like, come on, guys, what are you doing? You know, because, and I think probably because they were like, hey, y'all, you, you just came right out and said it, and now I don't feel like any of us have that shot. You know, we want it too. And so I think we, as, we, as we look at this, there is this, um, we're, we're talking on the level of desire. What do we want? We want recognition. We, we want for Jesus to do whatever we want him to do for us, as, as the disciples did. And so it's just like, hey, um, we want you to do whatever you want. And then, and then the second thing I think we see that the disciples want is they want power. We want to sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. We, we want the capacity to do, to, we don't just want to be recognized. We want to have the, the power and the capacity to actually execute what we want to do. And then lastly, they want security and stability. That the, the Gentiles gone, the, the way that I think about the kingdom of God where the Gentiles are driven out and I'm sitting um, to the left and right of the Messiah on the throne in Jerusalem, um, fat and happy, drinking from the golden chalice some fine wine. Right. Um, we want security and stability and we're, we're looking for it in that type of way. And, and uh, I think that, you know, sometimes, like, like Keller said in his book, when we read this, um, we're not supposed to say, how can these fools keep missing it, right? So we're, looking at, we're looking at the total picture, and we're looking at it hindsight. So it, it is. It, you know, I remember reading this for a long time. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, how can the disciples be so stupid, right? <laughs> and yet, I think that the right answer, like Keller says, is we're supposed to be saying, what am I missing right now? Because I guarantee you guys, if, if we think that we're different than the disciples, we're wrong. Right? The times have changed. The cultures have changed. Our desire for power and recognition and stability and security all in the wrong ways have not changed. And so uh, Jesus corrects them and he says, well, hey, uh, we'll, we'll go from, we'll go from what what you want, and I'm going to kind of correct this to say, if you want this, um, then, then let's talk about that. 
Um, and so Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Um, not so with you. If you're going to be my disciple, it is not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, he must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And so we see this, we see this dichotomy that Jesus draws this line in the sand and he says, look, the world, the world's, uh, the world seeking recognition and power and stability and security, because look, let's, let's be honest, guys, there's nothing inherently wrong about those things. There's nothing wrong with recognition. There's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with security and stability. It becomes wrong when it's disordered and, and is not ordered rightly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. When we begin to grasp at it, thinking that our security is going to be found in those things, then it becomes disordered and it will kill you. Right? And that's why Jesus is saying, look, the world is dictatorial. They're authoritarian. And their power, the power that they grab at, dude, just look at that list that I just put up there. Babylonians, Persians, <laughs> Greeks, Romans. One after the other, these world empires that at their apex, just like we in the United States at our apex, hey, this is going to, we're going to, our kingdom is going to last for forever. No, it's not. No, it's not. Right? There, ha there has not been a kingdom that's lasted forever, and, and there will not be, save um, the kingdom that's found under the one man, Jesus Christ. He is the king. And so, and so, Really, I think a lot of times what we, what we say when we're like, hey, I want this, is, is that, and, and guys, this is such a danger for us because um, really as we grab for power and security in, in the ways that we do today, um, really I think people think they want the kingdom of God, but what they actually want is their world as it is, but with power. That's what we really want. And so we end up using Jesus as a means to establish our own kingdom in our own way, just using him as an excuse to get power. No more time have I ever seen this as clearly as I'm seeing it today in this election in the United States of America. This is a real danger for us. Look, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, who not to vote for. I would never tell anybody to violate their conscience and what they do in the voting booth, right? But I am telling you that there is a real danger as Christians to, to step out and, and to make a kingdom of the world, a dictatorial, authoritarian-type kingdom, supreme over our responsibility and our conviction as people who are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And so just be careful. Be careful in, in how we engage our world because as Jesus showed in the first century and is still true today, the type of power that lasts that, that is uh, the type of power that, that we are to wield as citizens of the kingdom of God does not look anything like the world, right? He, in fact, I mean, he, he says um, the kingdom of God is someone who's a servant. Power exercised in the kingdom of God makes you a slave. And look, guys, um, it, it, <clears throat> that type of power 
that's exercised in a, in a humble way that's dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit, that type of power that would cause us to serve our brother unconditionally, that, that type of power where we make ourselves slaves underneath the people that we serve, that type of power cannot die. You can't kill it. And so I, I guarantee you there's guys here this morning that are like, I just don't really get it. I don't really get it that, that me acting as a slave or acting as a servant is really what God wants me to do. Um, and I would say that, that the power of deeply ingrained um, worldview and lens and expectations that we have is so powerful that it's shaping our world so that we, in, at times in our lives, can say, hey, even though I'm claiming the name of Jesus, what I'm really after is a position of strength. And Jesus, from a position of strength, puts himself into a position of weakness. That's Christianity. Nothing less. There's a lot more, but it's not less than that. And what's really interesting, guys, is that that the next thing that happens in verse 46, they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples came Together with a large crowd, they were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And he heard that Jesus of Nazareth and began to shout, Jesus, son of David. There it is, right? It's a messianic term. He's recognizing Jesus' authority as the Messiah. Have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, come here, call him. So they called the blind man. Hey, dude, cheer up, man. Get on your feet. He's calling for you. Come on. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. There is this expectation of, of, of man, here I come. I, I, I need something from the Messiah. I'm, I, I am in a position of weakness. I'm in a position of dependence. I'm in a position of humility. And I'm coming to Christ, who is the king, right? And what's really interesting is now we have the same thing is, is where the disciples said, we want you to do something. And Jesus said, if you want that, then this. And now Jesus asked the blind man, he says, what do you, what do you want me to do? Right? And the guy says, I want to see. What, what's crazy is the disciples are the ones who were supposed to be able to see, and they could not see. Because they were blinded by all of these different things in their lives. And the, and the section ends with Jesus saying, look guys, to prove the point, I'm going to bring this blind man who is begging. He is in a position of weakness. He is begging. I'm going to bring him to me and I'm going to ask him, what do you want? And he has the right answer. I want to see And there's a recognition by the blind man to Jesus that I want to see, and you are the only one that can help me see. So I'm going to stay in a posture of dependence where, as the slide says, where where this is totally new. Nobody's ever healed a blindness in the Old Testament, ever, not once. And here comes Jesus who says, look, guys, in case you think that in my position of weakness that you think I'm actually weak and don't have authority, I'm going to continue to show you that, no, my position of weakness is one of self-subjugation. I'm putting myself here because actually I'm the only one who has the authority to rule all of the nations. But it's just that my rule doesn't look anything like the world's. 
And so of all the people who are supposed to be able to see, they can't see. And the one guy who can't see is the one guy that gets it right. So my question to you this morning is, hey, what's the posture of your heart as we tie this up? Do you find yourself mentally posturing for position so that you can exercise um, whatever authority you have in your life from a position of strength? And if so, guys, that is not Christian. Or do you every day wake up and be like, I am blind unless you help me see. I am totally, absolutely, and in every way dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to make me the man that you've created me to be. And like Paul says in Corinthians, um, when I am weak, then what? When I am weak, then what? One more time. When I am weak, then what? Then he is strong. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a Christ life that that is lived through you. You become a conduit through which the Holy Spirit exercises his immeasurable power through you. But only as you yield to his spirit in a position of weakness. So in case you think that Jesus was just saying all of this, for the heck of it, right, Um, then I just want to remind you, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And man, husband, father, friend, you're called to do the same thing. When we're weak, he's strong. Father, I pray that the reality of that would not just hit us in the head and bounce off and we would continue to look for strength in the wrong places, but that we would stay in a, in a humble, dependent posture before you to allow you to mold us into the image of your son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray these things in his name. Amen.